You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. Hi, and welcome back to The Crisis Beat. This is episode seven, and it's March 1st, 2023. My name is Brady Wood. I'm a business owner and public relations professional. I'm here with my co-host again, Dr. Mark Crowther, who in his other life is chair of medicine at McMaster University. Mark, welcome back to the program. It's been an exciting kind of week in the news, so maybe we should just jump into some of the cool cases we have there. And then our our larger topic today is communications and crisis in the royal family in the in the last 20 years. So interesting topics all around. Yeah, thanks, Brady. I agree completely. It's been a busy week, both in terms of the, the news related to some of these companies and others that are getting into trouble. And also there's a broader agenda, which we haven't really touched on yet, but I think we probably should talk about at some point in the future. And that is how sort of systemic misinformation is actually facilitating crises in some some ways. And we're going to touch briefly on this Ohio trail, train derailment in a couple of minutes. And I, that is actually becoming one of the lightning rods, I think, for systemic communication strategies that are being implemented by people that are driving, actually driving the news cycle in a, in a very weird kind of way, rather than the train derailment driving the news cycle. I think the the the, the spin being applied is driving the news cycle. Mark, why don't we start on that one? Because I have some knowledge of it. I feel like you have more knowledge. And I can just say this Ohio train derailment issue, it's a huge volume in the news cycle. Like I'm really shocked at the amount it's parsed and the degree that it's been politicized. And it's almost one of these, like it's almost like that joke of who's on first. Like I'm not actually sure who is the most accountable person to communicate about it because I think it's I've seen kind of Biden on the defensive about it. I've seen Trump on the defensive about it, about deregulation having caused it and other folks saying that's not the case. So it is a, it's a complicated one as well. But what, what's your read on it? So just for people listening, in case you haven't heard, so the background of this is that a, in a small U.S. town in Ohio, a large train derailed. There was a fire. It was carrying a number of different chemicals, which some of which are deemed to be reasonably toxic. The fire burnt for a number of days. There was a large leak of the chemicals. Some of it was actually vented by the emergency response personnel because venting it would reduce the likelihood it would detonate. It was then burnt off. There's a significant amount of environmental contamination as a result of this. There was a lot of water that got into the local water supply, which killed a lot of fish. Uh, and generally just, uh, you know, it was, it was a big event. These events actually happen with some frequently frequency trains move enormous amounts of toxic stuff all over. If you've ever been sitting at the train track, waiting for a train to go by and saw an entire enormous container car go by filled with something that's labeled on the side as sulfuric acid. For example, you can, you see that these things are enormous and carry a lot around and they're necessary for the way that we run our society. The, the, the problem of course, is that, uh, they, the, the, it's a fallible system. And so some of these train dramas do occur. There's been two very noteworthy ones in Canada. One was in Lake Magantique where a train actually wasn't, it didn't, it ran out of control into the center of town exploded and killed an enormous number of people. And also many years ago, there was a similar accident to this, actually very similar to this in many ways, which occurred in the center of Mississauga, which was at, at that time, one of Canada's growing cities, now one of Canada's largest city, and it required them to evacuate the entire core of the city. Um, interestingly enough, that was long before this era of kind of hyper-politicization. And it actually made the career of Hazel McCallion, who was Mississauga's mayor at the time, 
and went on to become the one of Canada's longest serving mayors and recently died after, I think, stepping down from office when she was 92 years old. Mm-hmm. So quite interesting. Anyway, in this one here, what's essentially happened is that the this has become a political issue. So there was an interesting article this morning in the New York Times. I think it was the 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 might have been somebody else actually said that he'd received, you know, the federal federal US government had provided all the help they could need and everything they've asked for they've gotten. I I think, you know, there there's no question that the emergency response people did everything they possibly could and played by the rule book. There's no question that venting these things wasn't like, I think everybody who works in the field that I've read felt that the response was as good as it could be. What's percolated along since then is this enormous battle that's going on about what the cause of this was, who's responsible, and can it be pinned on one of the two sparring major U.S. political parties. In reality, what happened is, I think it was a hot, what's called a hot bearing accident. So basically, the wheels of the train require, have bearings, and occasionally they fail. And when they fail, there's a catastrophic wheel detachment, which results in a, in a, in a, an accident or a derailment. The I don't know that, you know, it's hard to see how you could attribute that to a pol- politician. <laughs> but I think part of the argument that you raised just a second ago is that, you know, did deregulation reduce the safety margin? Did there was an issue about there was some new brakes that were supposed to be put on these things, but they were not put on. I think it's just a lot of hypothesis generating. The real issue is that the truth won't come out for years because the National Transportation Safety Board in the United States will do a very thorough, very arm's length and apolitical investigation, as it always does in these things. But it takes a very long time to do that. So in the meantime, you know, we have rumor and innuendo flying around. And more importantly, by the time that report comes out, this news cycle will be long past. The real issue we wanted to touch on today was just the U.S. Transportation <laughs> Secretary's Response. Well, I think essentially was that the transportation secretary for the U.S., Pete Buttigieg, was approached by a reporter. And essentially, he, although he is probably the most accountable senior official for this kind of file, tried to brush off the reporter by saying that he's on personal time and he doesn't want to talk about it in a, in a pretty abrupt kind of manner. So I would say the the kind of least skillful approach to crisis communication in some on an, a topic of massive national importance total lack of empathy uh, understandable obviously people have personal time but not in those roles frankly like an obama or any of these folks uh, trump like they're you're never on personal time that's not an excuse to not be able to communicate is that kind of your read on this mark we'll, we'll put the new york post article with this in the in the write-up of this episode, by the way, so folks can refer back to it and have their own look at it. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. Is this comes back to the same issue we talked about before with Southwest Airlines? That you know that this guy is the equivalent of a CEO. He's he's not making anywhere as much money as a CEO, but he took this job on voluntarily. It's a 24-7, 365 job. There is no such thing as personal time when you have a job like this. It doesn't matter. There just isn't. And as a result of that. No, you got to be on point all the time. If you can't be on point all the time, you shouldn't have a job like this. And when you're on point, it means that you have practiced and skilled responses. It would have taken him an, an additional 15 seconds to provide a wise communication to that reporter. Instead, he snapped, and now it's news. And so he's created his own news cycle. Yeah, and Mark, can I also say it sort of strikes me that maybe if he'd stood up in a more kind of accountable, leaderful way, 
maybe all of this politicization could have been avoided or at least partially avoided. Like, I don't know if this is a good a good comparison, but Rudy Giuliani in 9-11, like there was kind of no question of who the accountable party was in New York who was taking a look at these events. And in this one, it's like, I don't know who, again, who's on first on Ohio train derailment? Who's the most accountable communicator? Who Who's in the line of sight? It seems like it's become diffused, but that that speaks to a lack of leadership on my part. And based on what we're seeing here, I'd kind of pin it on Pete. Yeah, I think so. I think exactly. This could be this comment undoubtedly fans the flames of all the dysfunction that follows afterwards. Because it's easy to say, oh, the left isn't doing their thing and the right and then the right and then the left circles back and says, no, but this is Trump's fault. And it's sort of like, okay, but really, this is just a train derailment. And you want to know that people are are governing themselves appropriately and handling and analyzing it. Right. And there's also huge impact for the people on the scenes and and making sure those people have got have what they need and that the downstream implications of this are mitigated to the extent that's possible is the functional part. Now it's become a circus, which has little or nothing to do with the people who've been impacted. Yeah, I'm I'm totally in agreement here. Yeah. And and I think you're entirely correct. If if he had you know sort of said you know, I, this is an issue which we acknowledge this. It is it's extremely unfortunate. You know, it's resulted in horrific problems for the people who live in the area. We are working our very best to sort this out. We have resources on the ground. Here's the phone number that you should be in touch with if you have questions about how to personally deal with this. I will be holding a news conference at 10 o'clock tomorrow when I feel better informed about our current strategy and I'd ask you to attend that. And in the meantime, here's the resource page that we've put together, which contains all of the current information. Like that took me probably under a minute, right? But that would have made this a non-story. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good note, by the way. When you have something like this, a multi-day critical incident, great to just set up a time where you're the, like in this case, who's the leaderful guy in rubber boots and a raincoat on the ground doing a daily press conference with updates? That's what this situation needs because then there's kind of, there could still be all that politicized chatter, but the news the news media would know this is the source I'm going to for this information. If that's happening, I'm not aware of it because it's not coming through that way. It's coming through as this glob of of infighting and again, who's who's accountable? Um, right. And, and the train company's also been completely absent. I, they may have been trying to mount a, a public relations campaign related to this, but it certainly hasn't cut through the noise. And I've heard absolutely nothing about them. So we probably could at some point do a little bit of a deep dive to see what their communication strategy is. But it strikes me as actually being worse than Southwest's over the Christmas holidays. So very interesting, really very interesting. Yeah, if they're doing it too, I, I don't think I've heard a peep in my daily news read about, about this either. So yeah, it is very interesting. We should keep moving on just because yeah. our time is passing. Do you want to tell us a bit about Balenciaga and its ongoing saga? Yeah, Mark. So this one's another one, kind of a bit of a shocking case in my mind, but tells you a little bit about some dynamics in, in our in our world and, and media and culture as well. So Balenciaga is one of these brands that often gets vilified for like overcharging for silly clothes, like, you know, a pair of a pair of boots with spikes on it or or a purse that looks that looks like a hamburger, but it's like twelve thousand dollars, for example. It's one of these upscale brands, very modern design, the likes of Kanye and Kim West uh, where Kim Kardashian wear this brand this is sort of like a very showy fashionable somewhat casual brand that's in the press a lot 
And recently they did an ad campaign that showed children in rooms alongside stuffed animals that were wearing sort of sadomasochistic bondage outfits. So God knows how something like that got past the, the you know, folks that uh, okay these, these ads or creative directions. Um, I'd also say, Mark, this is kind of part of the DNA of this brand as being shocking. So it's it's not actually that surprising. I, I was able to find, for example, and I'll, I'll link this in the comments, a shirt from a couple of seasons ago that they were selling on a children's line that had the Simpsons in sort of sadomasochistic outfits as well. So this just seems to be some angle this brand was going for to, to be edgy or worse, to push our boundaries on sexualization of children. Obviously, this caused a huge uproar in the fashion community and in the media and led to the, the creative director making a kind of broad, broad strokes apology about learning and dialed back, took removed the ads immediately and, you know, saw some of the celebrities and others kind of pull back their support for the, the brand. And so now I just found it interesting. Um, it sounds like it hasn't helped their financial fortunes the way they handled it. And here's now another firm who's hiring for a crisis communications expert to come in-house. And so I think this speaks to what they needed to have on the front end of this. I think every brand at that level should have this in-house expertise. Interestingly, too, Mark, they, it's a vice president role at Balenciaga. It's based in New York, and it pays 150 to 200K a year. Now, I don't know if you've been to Manhattan lately, but I have. But A, there's no way you could find really good living arrangement in Manhattan on 150K a year salary. And there's also no way you're wearing Balenciaga on that salary. So that just struck me as humorous. But the broader thing here is this is really poor performance by uh, an internationally known brand that, that actually did something fairly despicable. And I don't I don't know how they clean that image up. The The only action I can see them taking is that they've kind of cooled it on their children's line. The children's line is now appealing more to parents who want to show that their kids are wearing expensive stuff by just having the Balenciaga logo on hoodies for kids. So it's like a cooled off, looks like the gap, but you know, a kid's hoodie is a thousand dollars or something Canadian. So if you're shopping on that brand, it looks like they're appealing to to Drake's son or something like someone who can afford that, but nothing too edgy in the communication. Um, so that that's all I really have to say on that. But I, I found it just another interesting case and reaffirming our our approach in terms of a brand being a proactively not doing horrible things, but b also having staff on side that can help in a pinch to author a plan that could get them out of this. I'm not actually sure what would rejuvenate the brand if people are continuing to flee from it because of this association with a bit of. I would almost say a bit of a pedophile culture. Like that's that's really what the people are intimating now about the brand. Yeah, it strikes me as, you know, this is a real issue for this company, but it speaks to that bigger issue, which is we've woven through every podcast we've had, and that is it takes 37 years to build your brand and 37 seconds to destroy it. And, you know, I think you can do that proactively by doing things like this, or you can do it retroactively by not being prepared, or you can do it both ways. And maybe they've done it both ways in this particular circumstance, both causing an unnecessary firestorm and then not having the resources immediately available to deal with the firestorm that they caused. Very, very interesting. And it also fits with the issue that we've talked about before, where people are able, some people are able to convert 
their crisis into a bigger crisis from which they benefit, which is a strategy to deal with crisis that doesn't fit into the traditional molds. And then we're going to spend a few minutes later talking about the opposite strategy, which is the strategy that people or institutions who have thousand year long reputations can adopt a completely different strategy than anybody else can. And and that's to just basically sit it out. Because as you and I talked about, when you've previously sat out controversies like the fact that you beheaded people or burnt yeah. them at the stake or entombed them in dungeons until they starved to death. A lot of the stuff we're talking about seems pretty banal. And if your brand survived that stuff, your brand's likely to survive this stuff. But just a couple other quick ones. Well, so first, actually, because it's a parallel story is the Oscars as well. So similar to Balenciaga, the Oscars then announced in light of the Will Smith slap episode from last year's Oscars that they've now put a crisis communications team in place to anticipate any and all disasters that they might face based on people misbehaving at the Oscars. So they got the message after, you know, probably, I don't know how much the Will Smith slap harmed the Oscars as much as it also seemed to bolster the Oscars in the sense that I think their viewership was down, but for weeks after, all everyone was talking about was that slap. So it probably had a bit of a perverse effect on interest in the Oscars. But now we're seeing that they've got a comms team in place, as as we would recommend. And yeah, I think that, that the impact is much greater on Will Smith than it is on the Oscars. Yeah, I think so, too. Absolutely. But interesting that they were also, I mean, maybe the person they hire at Balenciaga can also work for the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> But And then, Mark, the other one that uh, you and I have talked about this week was just this extraordinary moment of, of Biden visiting Kiev, and then maybe we'll head to the break. But uh, you wanted to draw our attention to this r- remarkable stagecraft and, and events. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm sure that all the listeners are aware, but, you know, Joe Biden goes on a trip to Poland to mark the first year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And magically, while everybody thinks he's still asleep in Washington with a departure that's 24 hours away from it, he magically pops up in in Kiev or with Zelensky standing beside him. Turns out to be just an absolutely remarkable event that got him there. He took the train. It was a nine and a half hour train ride. He was accompanied by what I would describe as a lot of very twitchy Secret Service agents, I would assume. Extraordinarily twitchy, but no air cover, no military because they didn't want it to be construed into suddenly becoming an invasion. They notified the Russians beforehand, and then he has like the press op of a century. And I, you know, the the first thing I thought about this is this is like stagecraft and marketing of the highest order because even his most ardent critic isn't is can't possibly say that the guy hasn't got guts, right? Because he's always a target everywhere he goes, but. You know, there, there's like literally a nuclear tipped target on him. And he is outside of his security coverage zone. There's basically no way to rescue him. He's the only U.S. president to have ever traveled to an active war zone where there weren't troops, uh, American troops that had control of the stage. You know, just just the fact he, there's no way he had his usual level of invigilation of the people who were standing around him. There's, <laughs> there's live munitions literally hurtling through the air quite remarkable and and oh it, it's it's one of those things where i bet you even the most hardened conservative republican woke up in the morning and read that and said well wow that's that's actually quite impressive the other thing that we talked about is that it's really hard to counter that russians will have an extraordinarily hard time to counter it because there's no way that putin is going to show up in donetsk it just can't possibly happen they just can't and and more so 
basically Biden was just was essentially daring the Russians to do something and they didn't is very, very interesting. Yeah. And I think just like, you know, yeah. a, a documentation of 50 years of stagecraft, right? Yeah, it felt like he had supreme confidence that nothing could happen to him. And so that that in itself is just an act of like what felt like pure power on, yeah. the, on the stage. It was really impressive. And not a the opposite of crisis communication. It's probably, you know, it's, it's extraordinarily risky. It could have gone wrong in so many different ways. We talked about the fact, you know, if he had actually been had died as a result of an intervention that may have started World War Three, but it certainly would have probably actually put a punctuation mark under the message he was trying to deliver. So he probably thought about that and thought, no, oh, there's there's nothing. Oddly enough, there's nothing to lose in doing this. But it was just really very remarkable. Yeah, incredible, incredible moment. Well, Mark, thank you. So why don't we we'll take a brief break now and uh, we'll return in a few minutes with our examination of crisis communications, the royal family, family. Princess Diana's death, Harry and Meghan. So as you alluded to, that's that's our next topic in the podcast. Great. Thanks, Brady. Back in a minute. Welcome back to The Crisis Beat. After our short break, Mark and I are now going to take a look at crisis communications and the royal family. It's been an eventful few weeks and months with Harry and Meghan's Netflix special, Prince Harry's book. And then most recently, a South South Park spoof of Harry and Meghan on their international privacy tour, which was actually quite funny. But what we really wanted to look at is, out of all of this, the royal family itself has come under fire. And there are accusations that have been made and maybe an expectation of greater responsiveness. And looking at it, you know, they might they might go against some of the crisis communications best practices, at least on first glance that we've been talking about. So instead of just quick responsiveness and availability, this is an organization and a group of people and a family that have and even historically, as we'll talk about, have sort of taken their time. So, Mark, I don't know if you want to just say anything about that. We're going to talk about a Martin Amos article in the New Yorker about this, and 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 some of the events that have gone 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 on. So, what what is your initial take on this? Yeah, thanks, Brady. I think this is actually a unique. This is something we haven't talked about before because the royal family lives in a completely unique situation. But there probably are other monolithic entities that have a very long time horizon which can probably deal with crisis in the same way they can. But what it requires is the patience of Job, meaning that you have to be very confident that you will outlive the con- the controversy and that at the end of the controversy, your brand is so strong that you will still be seen as who people will trust. And and I don't know that there are corporations that can do that. Maybe some of the really, maybe Warren Buffett could do this or, you know, something like that. But the royal family's been around for on and off various manifestations for over a thousand years. Traces genealogy back to King Alfred the Great, which was, you know, more than, way more than a thousand years ago. They've weathered storms, which would make any major corporation blanch and fade and shrivel away. As I said, wars, pestilence, plagues, fires, mass drownings, burnings at the stake. Ordering, I was listening to a podcast where where the Anglo-Saxon king ordered the people to kill their neighbors who were Danish and 
So on one day, people went out and killed all the Danish people in their area, like stuff that nowadays would just be incomprehensible, but was kind of real in the past. And I think their strategy is actually informed by this, right? Their strategy is this too shall pass. So let's do what we need to do to avoid incredibly nuclear toxic damage to our reputation. Let's keep our head down. We can keep our head down for 10 years if we need to. At the end of 10 years, we will still be here and we will still be popular and the brand will still exist and we'll still own a big chunk of United Kingdom. So we can just keep doing what we're doing. It's actually really very interesting. I don't know if Brady, you want to talk a little bit about that New Yorker article? I think it's actually really interesting. Yeah, there's a Martin Amos article where he talks about Queen Elizabeth's emotions, but he really goes into the story of Diana and the amount of restraint the Queen showed initially to not just bulk and come out and make emotional displays and lower the flag. And she was criticized for that. But then he relates it back to like her kind of inner emotional stoicism and strength and quietude and firmness that has kind of served this institution well. So I'll just read a little blurb from the article about an event decades before Diana's death when she was a young monarch. And so this says that the quote says, early in her reign, Elizabeth II was due to visit the Yorkshire town of Kingston upon Hull and asked one of her private secretaries to prepare a first draft of her speech. I am very pleased to be in Kingston today, the, the draft confidently started. The young queen crossed out the word very. I will be pleased to be in Kingston, she explained, but I will not be very pleased. And so that, I mean, that made me chuckle a lot, but then you, <laughs> you apply this to how they're, how they are handling, well, A, the, the, the death of Diana was just hugely tragic. She, she navigated a very tough path to align her emotions with the moment while also not being inauthentic to herself or the position. And, and ultimately kind of seemed to have, I think the article suggests, seemed to have kind of struck this interesting balance against the framing of Diana as a beloved and invoking love and high emotion, and the royal family clearly kind of not being about that. And I'd like to draw a parallel there to the, the Harry and Meghan saga. These folks are kicking up a lot of dust. And, you know, there have been what appear to be accusations of, of racism by, you know, Meghan, I'm not saying she said it was racist, but she said that people were concerned about how the color, the the amount of pigmentation her baby would have. Like there, there are some pretty scathing things. And it's it's riled a lot of folks to hear these things about the royal family. And I think a lot of people have taken sides. But as you know, Mark, I did a, a master's degree in philosophy and I still I still read for pleasure in that realm. And I was there's two things I read recently where I, I thought of this in, in terms of the communication strategy. So you and I talked about uh, Spinoza. Spinoza was writing in the rollicking 1650s in Amsterdam. But he had this one concept in the ethics, which was viewing things sub specie eternitatis, which means under the lens of eternity. And it strikes me that that's, that's part of what the royal family is, is able to do here. Yeah, they, can, they have the, the longevity and the experience and the unplumbable depths of respect that they can weather the storm because they know that all the forces that assail them will be more transient than they are. And I must say that the South Park episode was very funny. I will obviously, to avoid us getting our butt suit off, point out that South Park has vehemently articulated that it's a Canadian story, as South Park always is. And it's completely unrelated to anything that happened in reality. But it is very funny. 
and and there's an awful whiff of millennial entitlement on serious steroids about the two people in the South Park episode who may or may not be characters of two people who are in the news at the moment. Yes, the person who is is not Harry, but is is very similar in that he had, his book title is Wah, like <laughs> as an example from the episode. So the episode is definitely worth looking up. It does depict those two people as as annoying and saying they don't want privacy, but they're running around the globe saying we're on a privacy tour. Very, I think, very clever satire. But they've thrown a lot of barbs at the royals, the actual Harry and Meghan, from what I see. It does seem like a war of words, but the royal family itself is not responding too much. And back to that philosophy thing, the other line that struck me was that was reading some Nietzsche recently. So Nietzsche writing in the late 1800s about the overcoming itself. And he has this line, I'm paraphrasing, but it goes something along the lines of, if you're truly a lion, what are your fleas to you? And it's yeah, exactly so cool that this lion-like royal family is is kind of turning its head at the irritation of these these flea-like family members that have been grading, raised concerns, but they don't they don't seem to feel that they need to mount a public relations defense that says we're not racist or we didn't do that or we disagree. Like their response has been a kind of stoic silence and a bit of stagecraft. And I and I think it's very interesting that we look at that because. Most brands, I don't think, are capable of that. We've seen examples that are kind of like this, like Trump, Elon Musk, and even telecommunications failures at Rogers, where the brands didn't really rise to the occasion, and they still persevered. Um, But this seems like a far more conscious and thoughtful strategy by the royal family. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, if you go back, we were chatting before we started taping, Prince William Prince Harry are apparently in combat with one another, but it doesn't involve swords or arrows, whereas the royal family has had lots of siblings who've killed each other, or one sibling has killed the other one, or one sibling wiped out the entire half of the family in order to make sure that their ascension to the throne was going forward. So, you know, there's a collective memory here, which is extraordinarily well-informed about the magnitude of the issues they face. I I always think back to when, when COVID was starting, and the you know that we hadn't there wasn't really very much known and the queen came on and did an address and it's worth actually going back if you're a ch- if you're a, a student of public relations and listening to that address because it epitomized exactly what you just articulated Brady it's you know this is an elderly woman who's at very high risk of having something horrific happen as a result of this disease it's potentially threatening to not just herself personally but her family members and to the enterprise that she leads both conceptually, that is the United Kingdom, and in reality, that is her entire gigantic, highly valuable, highly profitable business. And she, you know, puts on her colorful outfit. She gets perfect lighting. She gets great sound. She gets the press possible videographer, and she doesn't address, which settled the mind of many people in a way that I said in my mind, the only other person I can think of who could do something like that maybe would would be like. A, I don't even know, an, an extraordinarily well-respected, very senior leader that that didn't have a lot of political meanderings associated with them. I, I, I don't even know who else could, like, can you think of another brand that has this ability? I, I'm trying to think of it. It, it, would, it would have to be someone with such gravitas and such respect. Like, I look at how revered, like, Steve Jobs was when he died at Apple, but I'm I'm not sure what they would have had to go through and what he would have had to say that would have been like, I'm not sure there is an equivalent really. 
And in that yeah. way, it might, it might be a singular strategy, like this subspecia ternitatis, what are your fleas to you, wait it out, and then do something gracious at the right moment. Like that might only be the kind of rarefied error of a very few people in history. Yeah, so I wonder, so Obama, maybe? Yeah, well, but you see, they, they, no, because the Republicans would go berserk. Right, um, they vilified him for a, a, a beige suit one time, so yes. Yeah, so I, we, we mentioned Warren Buffett, you know, again, not everybody's going to, uh, there'd be a big swathe of the political le- spectrum that would not think that, but he is like a universally respected father figure. Bill Gates, a lot of people think he implanted microchips in them. He clearly didn't, but it, he's he's really, really done an enormous amount of good over the last 20 years, in not with Windows, which drives everybody nuts, but with, <laughs> with his vaccines and malaria and other things. You, you, I, you know, the other gigantic edifices like the Roman Catholic Church maybe has this ability. They've they've intermittently gotten themselves into, I think some unnecessary responses i think they're they also have this kind of institutional capacity as i like your your allegory there allusion there that to sort of just turn their head and see what's making their neck itchy but not really have any physiological concerns about it so you know maybe some of these other big things it's possible though that this this is a lesson that we've talked a lot over the course of the episodes we put on about making sure you have a response for this, but the response shouldn't be triggered every single time something happens. You also need to develop some antenna to understand if something is sufficiently minor that a full bore response to it might actually cause trouble. And the reason it might cause trouble is it might look make it look like you're being too defensive. You're trying to hide something. So well, interestingly, Mark, they did have this issue with Prince Andrew being aff- affiliated with Epstein and and him undergoing a kind of sexual assault type litigation. And that one, I don't think the royal family came out and said anything, but they made some like public moves about Andrew that made that indicated that he was being pushed as far to the side as possible and kind of scolded. And that seemed to mean that 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 stain didn't stay on them either. Yeah, they basically just withdrew him from public. And when when people see him, it's like it causes antenna to vibrate. So they just, he's basically been sent into internal exile, I think. Um, And interestingly, Mark, I've got a Daily Mail article here about about public polling and reputation. And uh, basically post South Park, Harry and Meghan allegedly have worse polling numbers than Prince Andrew. So his negative negative opinion of Prince Andrew sits at negative two, while Prince Harry's negative approval is minus 10 and Meghan is minus 17. That's from the Daily Mail, so that's presumably a UK poll, but that is quite telling. So yeah, it absolutely is. I think, again, and uh, I've heard, I've read in preparation for this, a number of different sources where terms like entitled millennials is just all over the place. It's quite remarkable, actually. So you know, you would expect in the era of very hyper attuned issues around race and appropriate treatment of people that the kind of accusations that Harry and Meghan have been making publicly in their books would have resulted in the royal family having to deploy a a response team. And as you just identified, the response team hasn't 
I, I, they would probably not even have one. Or if they do have one, the response team is to just say that the turtle's head should stay inside the shell. They've effectively kicked Harry and Megan out. There was a news article over the weekend saying that they had been asked to leave the cottage that they had in London, Frogmore Cottage, which presumably is retribution for their behavior. But one doesn't know because one will never know. Well, it's kind of now you don't have somewhere to stay when you come home. I think that, and and by the way, they gave that that cottage to Prince Andrew, so he was moved out of Prince Andrew was moved out of Buckingham Palace, and now he gets Frogmore. Yeah, so I think Harry may have been right in that way. If they gave him Frogmore initially, he might have been the spare. If if now they're giving it to Prince Andrew, it's very it's it's you know I think that's the cool thing is that the tea leaves here are sparse but very interesting to read for sure. And Mark, by the way, I made a mistake on that polling. Those polling numbers are actually from the U.S. So since December of last year, Harry's U.S. popularity has sunk 48 points and Megan's 40 points. And that's how they have net approval ratings of minus 10 and 17, respectively. And that was a poll by Redfield and Wilton for Newsweek. And it was conducted on February 19th. Wow. they are not popular people in the U.S. either. And I, I can echo that I am a little tired of, of hearing of the... I, I think I mentioned to you, I saw an, I had a... I think it was a New Yorker article where they interviewed Salman Rushdie about recovering from the stabbing that he endured. And one of the things he noted was like he watched the Harry and Meghan Netflix special. And I think he couldn't finish it because of the, the horrible banality of it all. And, you know, I, I certainly, if I can speak of my personal emotions on the podcast, that's sort of how I feel about the whole thing, too. Yeah, there's a very good quote, which I think sums that up, which has been attributed to various people, including, I think, Mark Twain, as most witticisms have been, which is, and this is the world that I live in, the reason that academic politics are so intense is that there's so little at stake. I think probably the same is true here, that Harry and Megan should probably do a turtle, get their heads inside their shell, and... Uh, learn that you're not allowed to water the lawn in Southern California where they live, but the world privacy tour should probably come to a halt for a little while because they're into the, they're into the damage brand damage mode. It sounds like, and they need to figure out how to get out of it. I also think that they, some of the responses that I've seen in relation to the South park episode did not strike me as being very carefully crafted. And in fact, subsequently, apparently there was initially at least a, 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 an, a non-articulated but implied threat of a lawsuit, which I understand has since been withdrawn, which is also, I think, a good manifestation of the fact that they probably need to sit down with their communications advisors and figure out a strategy to, to make them start to rebuild the brand. Yeah, I mean, if I maybe that's where we end. But if I had any advice to those folks, it would be like, you're going to have to rebrand yourself through the, through the lens of what value do you deliver to the public if you want to be in the public eye? Because I'm, it's not clear to me what their unique value proposition is as a couple now that they've kind of unsuccessfully taken a, a run at the royal family and ended up wounded themselves for doing it. Although much richer, by the way, they made a lot of money on the book and the show and the Netflix arrangements, etc. So they're an extraordinarily wealthy independent couple. So maybe they can just go enjoy the beach. Yeah, well... Yeah, they absolutely could. But you may have seen that the beach and a lot of the beach in California has collapsed over the last couple of weeks because of the storm. So there's less beach than there used to be, but they can go enjoy the beach, although the water's really cold there. They, they, I th- I, that would be, you know, I think they really do need to uh, have a little time by themselves to figure out what their next step is. And I, I suspect that the best way out of this is either that they really do try to brand themselves with some kind of really, really clear message about 
like Bill Gates, that they're going to they're going to devote the rest of their lives to good works. Yeah, please uh, for the poor and, yeah. and fill out about your kind of psycho family psychodrama. Yeah, or they just need to join the rank and file of the hyper rich in California who quietly toil away their days figuring out how they're going to spend their money. <laughs> well, God bless them either way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Brady probably should wrap up there. That I think was an entertaining episode of nothing else. If you want to just take us out, probably we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for joining us here on the crisis beat. I'm Brady Wood with my co-host Mark Crowther. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Check us out on www.thecrisisbeat.com and keep listening. Click that subscribe button. Thanks so much. Thanks everybody.